It's a blessing to be here with you this morning. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22 this morning. My name is Corey Barnes. I serve as the pastor of adult discipleship here at First Baptist New Orleans. I'm blessed to be able to take part in the pastoral ministry and ministry of the word here at the church under Chad's leadership and under the leadership of Pastor Gary Myers. And it's a blessing to be able to be with you to open up God's word this morning and continue this series on why the cross. This is a huge question that we need to be asking, and we're, we're asking it at an obvious time of the year. We're asking it as we approach Easter, we celebrate the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're appropriately asking the question, why is this such a big deal to us as God's people, to us as Christians? It's a truth that, that could be conveniently left behind because it's a truth that requires us as people to focus one on the most horrific act in history, that the only truly innocent human, the only person who's ever truly lived a perfect life and is guilty of no wrong and no sin, dies a horrific criminal's death. It would be convenient for us to be able to leave this truth in the past. That's not the only reason it would be convenient for us to leave the cross in the past. The cross also reminds us that the central symbol of our faith and the central symbol of our existence as God's people is not our own righteousness or our own glory. It's not the good things that we do. It's not the knowledge that we gain. It's not even the service that we render to others, but instead it is an act of love that was done for us. Why? the cross, because it is so essential to us as God's people that we can never, ever, ever leave it behind. The cross must never be behind us. The cross must always be before us and central to who we are as God's people, central to the mission that God has called us to fulfill as a church as we proclaim the gospel to New Orleans and the nations. And this morning, we're going to be talking about why the cross as we enter Genesis chapter 22. And, and that might not seem an obvious place to look to the cross. Why are we looking at the Old Testament? As we prepare to read this passage, let me just ask you to be looking for some things as we read this passage. And I would invite you to be looking for these things as we read the Old Testament from Genesis all the way through the prophets. And that's this truth, that as we read the Old Testament, the God who is three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reveals himself to us through the Old Testament. And so as we read the Old Testament, we come to know what sort of God he is and the sort of things that he does. And he reveals to us, this is what you can expect about God and how he works in and among his people. And we begin to expect as we read the Old Testament, as we'll find in this passage, that God has some amazing things in the future for his people. And as those expectations build, as we read the Old Testament as Christians, they point us over and over and over and over again towards Christ and towards what God is doing as he incarnates himself and becomes Jesus Christ and is Jesus Christ walking among us and how Jesus dies and is resurrected and the spirit comes out upon every believer. We see those expectations building in the Old Testament. We're gonna see them in Genesis chapter 22. So if you will, please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. As we read Genesis 22, we're gonna read verses one through 19. It's the word of the Lord to us. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. 
take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my father. Abraham replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the land for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham looked and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham settled in Beersheba. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the goodness of your word. And as we go into a time this morning, asking, Father God, that you would just expose yourself to us from your word as we study it. Father, I ask that you would remind us that it's your word that is perfect and authoritative and true. And Father God, I ask you also that you remind all of us that my words come from the lips of a sinful man. So Father, if I say anything that's out of accordance with the truth of your word, then I pray that you would be gracious and as the Holy Spirit moves among the believers of First Baptist New Orleans and by grace drives us to read and understand your word for ourselves, that anything I might say in error would be identified, that I would repent of it first before you and then before this body so that First Baptist New Orleans would move forward in right doctrine, not to puff ourselves up, but instead that we would worship you in spirit and in truth and be driven by the truth and the power of your word as we proclaim the gospel to New Orleans and to the nations. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And you can be seated. So we're going through this story. I, I just want us to go through. I want us to make some observations about the story itself. And then I want to challenge us how this story is answering the question of why the cross? Because Abraham is, in, in a sense, showing us this is why the cross is so important. Look at this story with me. First, let's just set the stage. The first words of this passage tell us after these things, God tested Abraham. I just want to give us a, a really brief rundown of what these things are. Abraham has lived a complicated and chaotic story that's brought him to, to, to this surprising point 
in his life. This, this is what's been going on. First of all, in Genesis chapter 12, God has just taken this, this random old guy who married his half-sister and is 75-year-old with no children and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abraham. And not only make a great nation out of him, not only bless him, but in Genesis 12, 3, we're told that in Abraham, all the families of the world will be blessed. There's amazing promises that has been placed on the life of this man. And we might expect that what's going to happen in his story after that promise is that he's just going to live this faithful life. He's going to grow in faithfulness. He's going to be blessed immediately with children. That's not what happens. Abraham lives a, a messy life. It's a messy spiritual life twice Abraham is going to try to selfishly, sinfully pass off his wife Sarah as his sister so that he himself will have physical protection. Abraham is going to go through highs of, of seeing God use him as a military leader to rescue his nephew Lot. He's, he's going to at some point give up on the promise that God has given him of biological children. And in Genesis chapter 15, tell God, I, I guess you just want me to, to take a, a, a servant for my household and make him my heir. Then he's going to hear God say, no, you're going to have an heir that comes from your own line. And so he's going to go through these highs and then back to the lows again as sin infiltrates his life and his family's life. And they try to make God's promise happen in their own life. And Abraham is going to take Hagar and they're going to have a son, Ishmael, that's going to cause chaos in his family. And it's going to cause the sin in his family to perpetuate, gives up on having this son with Sarah, but God is still going to be faithful and God is going to make it obvious that no, the son that's going to be born, the covenant son, is going to come through Sarah. A Abraham struggles with this. Abraham has come to love his son Ishmael. In Genesis 17, he says, oh, that Ishmael would live before your eyes. God, if you would just accept Ishmael. But Ishmael in Genesis 21 is going to be sent away after the covenant son Isaac is born. Finally, the covenant son has been born. And Abraham has gone through this struggle of Ishmael being sent away. And he doesn't want to send him away. But God says, do this. I'll provide for Ishmael. But you're sending him out of your home. Isaac is going to be the one that the covenant is going to come through. So as we enter into this passage, these things that are talked about, there's a lot there. Abraham's been through this roller coaster of a story, a story of faith and faithlessness on his part, and a story of amazing faithfulness on God's part, the kind of faithfulness and the kind of power in Abraham's story that a man that was 75 when the promise came to him and 100 when his son Isaac has come to him now looks across the, the camp that he and his family dwell in every day and see this boy Isaac playing this boy who is the guarantee, this boy who is the object, this boy who is the, 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 the sign of all of God's promises to him. And now in Genesis chapter 22 and verses one through two, God tests Abraham and says in verse two, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. This is doing something as we read through this. This is asking us and it's asking Abraham, what is the object of Abraham's faith? The testing that's going to take place. And we're going to talk about the nature of testing, but the testing of Abraham's faith is essentially going to be a test of Abraham, is your faith in God or is it in the good thing that God has given you? Is it in the one who makes the blessing? Is it in the one who has given the blessing? Or is it in the things and in the people that you believe that God has blessed you with? 
there's a common response in Christian culture when we're asked, how are you doing? That often we answer, we're, we're blessed. And if we talk about our blessing, often we're talking about the things in our lives, the relationships in our lives, the stuff that's in our life, the status or the careers that we might have. And there's some biblical way to this. The Bible makes it clear that God in a very real way has blessed his covenant people. We can think about Psalm chapter one, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither and all that he does, he prospers. There is real truth that God blesses those who are in covenant with him. But the question becomes in Abraham's life and in our lives as well, is our trust in the fruit that we're bearing or is in the God in whom by grace we are rooted that blesses us in the first place? That's the question that's happening here with Abraham and with Isaac. This is one of those passages that's gonna drive us to a a very theological truth. We're going to to get into some, some heavy stuff as we look at how does this point us to the cross and answering the question of, why the cross? But I, I do just want us to see that there's something very practical about this truth, about the question of where is our faith? Is our faith in the blessings or is it in the one who blesses? Is our faith in God or is it in the things that he gives us in our homes or in our finances or in our possessions? I can tell you one of the ways that we can know is when God calls us with clarity to leave those things for the sake of his mission, for the sake of service, for the sake of proclaiming the gospel to our countrymen or to the nations. Do those things hold us back? Are we willing to give them up for, to follow God? Is our faith in God or the relationships that he leads us to establish? Is, is our faith in God or is it in the, the boyfriends or girlfriends that are in our lives? I can tell you one way we can tell is that as you are pursuing marriage and as you're pursuing relationships, as you're pursuing friendships, is God more important to you than success in those relationships? Are you following his will? Are you following what you want? Are you pursuing friendships and relationships because God's calling you to them? Or are you pursuing those relationships in spite of God's clear call? Is it God or is it our spouses or children? This one's difficult for us. We have a covenantal obligation to our spouses and children. There is a very real sense in which the Bible makes it very clear to me some of the things and the key things that God expects from me about my family. So the love that we have for wives and the love that we have for children, there is an element of that, of that consistent covenant love flows from the commands of God. But here's how we can tell if we put our faith in the blessings of family, the blessing of spouse, the blessing of children, instead of the God who gives us those good things, is are we using our family is an excuse to pursue God? Are we putting our family in a place where the entirety of life has become about the protection and prosperity of our children and the comfort of our families? Or are we saying, God, all of this is yours. Our faith is in you. Whatever you tell us to do, we know will be good. Is our faith in God or the reputation and prestige? We believe godly living has helped us establish Is our faith actually in God or is our faith in whatever position we know that at one time God called us to pursue? I'll tell you how we can know. Do we cling tightly to positions? Do we cling tightly to prestige? Or are we constantly walking in a place where we say, God, if you call me today into obscurity, I will follow. 
we have these same questions to ask. We also need to see here the central question, how it drives us to this theological truth. God is testing Abraham. And the central question of this test is this, does Abraham trust God enough to give up his only son? Whenever Kayla and I moved to New Orleans, I remember the first time her parents came and visited us. Her parents and her brother Josh, they came and visited and I'll, I'll never forget it. It was a big moment for me to have my in-laws in my house. When I say I had my in-laws in my house, I mean my brother-in-law slept on the couch in our one bedroom apartment and my in-laws were across the street in the hotel the seminary has because it was small quarters back then. I was excited about it. We were so glad to see them. We'd only been in New Orleans less than a year. And so it was great to have family come in I also will always remember that visit because it was the, the first time I ever went to, to Oshner Hospital. Kayla's brother, Josh, whenever he was here, started having pain in his neck. And so we went to Oshner Hospital. When I drive by Oshner on Jefferson to this day, I, I remember this visit. And, and while he was there, that led to a string of tests that led them to quickly return home. And, and those tests led to a diagnosis of leukemia. And, and, and that, that really started a time of testing for our family. And, and I just remember especially a time of, of testing faith for, for Kayla's father. And I don't mean that in the sense that he ever expressed doubt in God. I don't mean that in the sense that he wavered. I, I mean, it was a particular test of him because as his teenage boy was fighting cancer and he was leading his, his daughter and his other son and, and me as his son-in-law and his wife, Elena, as Kyle was leading us through that time, he was leading us through a, a test. Kyle and Elena, they've been in ministry their whole life. They sacrificed and they gave to others and, and now they were leading our family through this test of faith. And, and there was this question of, of what do you say whenever you're watching your son fight for his life and, and, and worried about him dying from cancer? So when I think of test of faith, this is one of the times that I remember. Test of faith's off, uh, uh, obviously raise some questions for us, some theological questions. I want us to define something though, as we go through this passage and we talk about what it is that God is doing here. I want us to define the difference between how Satan tempts us and God tests us. So as we go through this, just, just to lay groundwork, let's define the difference between how Satan tempts us and God tests us. The Bible is very clear. Satan tempts us to destroy us. Satan tempts us to destroy us. First Peter 5, 8 says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan hates you. He hates the people he, you love. He hates the people who are in Christ. And he wants to destroy you. That's what Satan wants, to tempt us, to destroy us. Here's what God wants to do. God tests us to prove his faithfulness to us. Satan tempts us to destroy us. God tests us to prove his faithfulness to us. That's what we're gonna see here, but it's not just here. Think about this. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. And this is what we're told. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Why did God test them? For their good, that they may not sin. This is Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. What's the purpose of the 40 years in the wilderness? To bring up the faithful generation that keeps God's commandments. Numbers is very clear on that. So testing 
Testing is something that God does to prove his faithfulness to us. So know that as we move forward. So first thing we're seeing here, God is tempting. I'm sorry, God is testing Abraham to prove his faithfulness to Abraham. He's testing Abraham to prove his faithfulness to Abraham. Now we're going to see how Abraham lives this out. I want you to look down at verse five with me. So, so we see this journey starting out, right? We see this journey starting out where Abraham is going to take Isaac. He's going to take these young men. He's going to take some donkeys. They're going to go out to the land of Moriah, and they're going to go up to this mountain that God is going to show Abraham. But, but look at verse five with me. So, so when they part with the young men, this is what happens when they start going up on the mountain. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Now, I'm, I'm reading in the Christian Standard Bible. Let me just tell you that, that if we look at the grammar here and we go back to the original languages, we see something even more specific that's very important for us as we understand this passage. Because this is what we would see if we read the, the Hebrew of Genesis. We'd see that Abraham says, I and the boy, we will go up, we will sacrifice, we will return. Grammar matters. Because what does this show us very, very clearly about Abraham's intention? We're going up the mountain. We're going to be told in just a minute that he's got knife and fire in his hand. We're going to see in just a minute that he goes to extraordinary lengths showing that he's obedient to this. But what is his resolute conviction? My son is coming back down this mountain with me. And something about the testing of Abraham here is, is rolled up in this kind of faith saying, we will go up, we will sacrifice we will come back down. When I remember the years of Josh's cancer, I, I remember in part how brave Kyle and Elena and Josh were. They, they went to chemo and went through a bone marrow transplant. Kyle preached most Sundays for the folks at First Baptist Church of Alamo where he was the pastor. Elena sat in the back and ran the sound system. And Josh, when he was strong enough to do so from the chemo, propped himself up against the stool. And, and I can still remember him to this day playing his blue bass guitar in the worship band. They, there was this faithfulness, this resolution that we see here with Abraham that, that God is in control and God is going to bring our son through this. I remember that. I remember that kind of resolution. I want us to see here what Abraham does as he follows God into this unknown place. I want us to give attention to this kind of faith. I want to ask, how can you have faithfulness like this? Look, look at what happens in verses 6 through 10. I just want us to see this as we go through, okay? So, so first, the, the journey continues, and Abraham takes these, these instruments of what we can only describe is, is this dark act up the mountain with him. And so he, he gives to Isaac the wood to put on his back to, 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 to burn up the flesh of an offering. And he takes in his own hand a knife and, and a torch and they walk up the mountain together. And as they walk up, he hears his son ask the question, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham knowing full well what he's doing, looks at his son, who he has just said is coming back down the mountain with him and says, Isaac, God will provide a lamb. But then the next part says this, when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. 
What kind of faith allowed Abraham to come this far? How can someone who is so confident that his boy is coming back down the mountain tie him to an altar and raise the knife? I want us to be very clear, church, throughout the history of how this passage has been interpreted because of the obvious objections that come about this type of act. There's been lots of people who have tried to absolve any type of discomfort here simply by saying, Abraham knows all along that he's not going to kill Isaac. I want to submit to you, that's not what Genesis is saying. Genesis says he ties him down and raises the knife and he's about to plunge it in. What type of faith can allow you to do that and at the same time raise the knife and at the same time say, I'm coming back down the mountain with my boy. I want to know about that kind of faith. And the author of Hebrews helps us. In fact, the author of Hebrews clarifies this. The author of Hebrews shows us what is in Abraham's mind because this is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. And it says this, says, by faith, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. You know what the New Testament author is saying there? Offered him up as though the sacrifice has been done. He received the promises and yet he was offering his one and only son to the one to whom it, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Author of Hebrews is helping us zoom in on the point. He gets it. This boy is everything and the knife is above his heart. How? Because the author of Hebrews tells us he considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. So the author of Hebrews is telling us that, yes, while God is about to intercede and he's about to stop the knife, how is it that Abraham can confidently say, we're coming back down and at the same time be so ready to plunge the knife into his son's heart because he knows that the one who has given a 100-year-old man a baby boy and the one who has given this promise to Abraham and Sarah and the one who has delivered him and the one who has been faithful when he was faithless, that finally in this moment, Abraham said, says that one can do anything, even raise the dead. And that's where this faith comes from. Sisters and brothers, I want to submit to you that this true faith, true faith is rooted in resurrection. True faith is rooted in resurrection. God doesn't allow Abraham to go through with it. Look at verses 11 and 12. Before Abraham can bring the knife down, God raises his voice. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, here I am. Notice, by the way, that that's Abraham's statement throughout this story. Whenever God calls him, here I am. Whenever Isaac calls him, here I am. I'll tell you part of what that's doing. It's showing us here that Abraham, it's showing his surrender throughout the passage. Here I am. I'm here, God. Knife's in my hand. I'm doing what you said. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. By the way, now, now the angel of the Lord knows, now Abraham knows, and now we know that Abraham feel, fears God. That's how he becomes to us an example of what saving faith looks like because he has faith, not in the object of the blessing, but in the one who gives the blessing. Abraham had said in verse seven, God will provide the lamb. And then in verse 13, this happens. Verse seven, he said, God will provide the lamb. That's important. He said, he's gonna provide a lamb. But then in verse 13, this happens. Abraham looked up. So after he hears the voice, stop, 
Don't bring the knife down. Hold up. Now he looks up and there's a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went, took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. This is important. The Bible does not give us erroneous details. Abraham says God's going to provide a lamb and now there is a ram. What, what's going on here? Did Abraham get it wrong? No. Abraham says maybe more than he realizes. God will provide a lamb, but now in this moment, as God has said, no, no, Abraham, not your son, right now a ram. And so what's going to happen is, is he is going to sacrifice the ram. There's sacrifice for the moment, but God will provide the lamb in due time. This story makes us expect a sacrifice that a father will complete a sacrifice that will do something that Isaac's sacrifice could not, a sacrifice that makes sense of Abraham's faithfulness, a better sacrifice, the true sacrifice, the sacrifice that will bring hope to all men, the sacrifice that will bring hope to every father wondering if their child is going to live, a sacrifice that gives hope, a sacrifice that points to the cross. There are similarities in the story between Isaac and Jesus. Both stories are showing a son willingly following a father and is making us expect that another son is coming. In this story, God calls Abraham to make this sacrifice on the mountain that he will show him in the land of Moriah. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we are told that it's on the mountain in Moriah that Solomon builds the temple. This helps us connect something as we're reading the story of the Old Testament. Once upon a time, the Old Testament is telling us in the land of Moriah, Abraham takes the ram and puts it on the altar because one day the lamb is coming. And that's helping us connect that all the sacrifices that happened on that mountain in that temple were made in expectation of another lamb that was coming. Something greater is on the way. And then then we see this in this passage. Abraham has faith, the kind of faith that says God can raise the dead. How will it happen? Because a better lamb is coming. And as we read this story, the primary thing, the best thing that it does is to point us towards the better Isaac, the better sacrifice. Caleb's brother died. In his last moments, he and Caleb and Kent and Kyle and Elena stood around his bed. They sang worship songs. 10,000 Reasons by Matt Redman was particularly valuable to Josh in those days. Kyle preached his funeral. His boy's coffin was right there. And he looked out over it at First Baptist Alamo. And he said, God is good. How can it be good for Christians to say that God is good? Even if everything we may cling to in this wife goes away. How can Abraham hold the knife over his son's heart and say, God is good? How can parents bury their children and say, God is good? How can we say that God is good if this life is fleeting? How could Abraham have the faith to sacrifice his son? How can Christians across the world and across the centuries be counted as conquerors and not fools when they testify to the goodness of God and, kill, and are killed for it? How could Kyle and Elena lose their son and say, God is good, sisters and brothers, this is why. Because of the cross. This is what Romans tells us. For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This, the cross, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that in his divine forbearance, he had passed over sins like Isaac's and sins like Abraham's. But for those who had faith that God is going to do something, Christ is paying for those sins. And this is what this is telling us. What Abraham and the Old Testament saints saw in the blurry but beautiful future, we now look to in the precise and precious words of the New Testament. And we say, this is how God has done it. He has done it through the cross. Because King Jesus, the better Isaac, the one who had faithfulness that Abraham only thought about, the one who has fulfilled every good promise, the one that every sacrifice pointed to, is nailed to a cross and he dies and is laid in a tomb in death and he defeats death and sin in his resurrection on the third day. That is why the cross. And this is where this comes to for us. What then are we to say about these things? Romans tells us that if God is for us, who can be against us? Chapter 8, and cha- chapter 8 and verse 31, as Nate read earlier, Paul says, God did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for his all, for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Sisters and brothers, no one. That's why the cross. As we respond to this, this is the way that I want us to consider this. Just ask yourself the question this morning, why the cross? I want to submit to you, folks, if you are here and you're a non-believer, if, if you're here and you've been on the margins of Christianity or you're here because you're curious or you're here and as you hear a message of the cross, you said, that's not what Christianity has been to me. I've associated it with something else. I just want to, to ask you this morning, ask yourself the question, why the cross? And I want to submit to you that this is the answer. Why the cross? Because it is your only hope. This is how the father has loved you. He has sent the son to die for you. And this morning, As you consider this message, I pray that the Holy Spirit is beckoning you to faithfulness. And I pray that you will surrender to the call and will profess faith in God, the one who has sent the Son to die on the cross. Why the cross? Because it is your only hope. And believers, as we enter this season of Easter, as we continue to live out the gospel, as Chad admonished us last week, that as we, as we walk towards Easter, that the gospel is before us, that this truth that by grace we are saved is before us, that as we ask the question, why the cross? Why are we doing this? As we go through our, our rituals, as we go through our worship, as we go through our lives, and as we walk towards Easter, I challenge us Christians that we ask the question over and over and over and over again, why the cross? And that is the answer we find because it is our only hope. And that from that happy truth, we would burst forth in mission and in praise. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you, Lord, and we thank you for your goodness to us. Father God, we ask you this morning 
that you would continue to convict us of the need for the cross, that you would convict us of your goodness, and that we would see that your goodness is most clearly demonstrated to us because of the cross. Father, we thank you that what Brother Abraham saw long ago in the future, we now see as we look to the moment that Jesus died on the cross. And King Jesus, we thank you for doing this for our sake and for the glory of the Father. We thank you, Father, that you have raised Jesus from the dead. We thank you, Father, that you send the Spirit upon us to unite us in worship and unite us in the truth that Jesus is our King and that in the cross he has paid the price for our sin, raised us to newness of life, and given us hope. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.